If you have a Bible, open it to the book of Esther. If you need to borrow a Bible from the pew in front of you, you can find that, the book of Esther in that black ESV Bible on page 410. If you have uh, your own Bible and you're trying to locate it, um, find the book of Psalms and then go one book back and find the book of Job and then go one book back and you will find the book of Esther. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand have sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. This poem was written in 1818 by a man named Percy Shelley, the poem clearly has a mocking tone. It is about Ramses II, Ozymandias, whose great kingdoms in which he thought that everyone would look on and despair, now nothing but sand. It's clear that the poem is a mocking of human power, mocking of at least Ozymandias' power. After saying, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, Shelley helpfully says, briefly, nothing remains beside there's nothing there. We come today to a book whose significance doesn't seem very pressing upon us. The book was written some 2,500 years ago. Indeed, we might even say 2,504 years ago because we can date it very, very clearly. It wasn't when the book was written, but that's when the events that are in it happen. The surface of the book of Esther tell us the story of the foundation of the celebration of Purim. That celebration that you know and love and you go into every year looking forward to as you celebrate Purim. You don't celebrate? Okay. So the question is, why do we care about a text that's so old that is telling us the story of a celebration that we don't celebrate anymore? What is the import of it? Well, the import of this is the same as the import of the poem Ozymandias. It tells us of the timeless story of human power, of its frailty, and, if nothing else, the glory of the power of a God who cannot be seen. How often do you look for the power of God? Do you think, now would be a good time, Lord, to show your power. Now would be a good time to show your might. Now would be a good time to see your glory. And you get nothing. You don't see the power of God. You don't feel the ultimate weight of his glory around you. This book desires, amongst many other things, I think above all, to give you hope in the power even when God can't be seen. The beginning of that story is seen for us here today in Esther 1. If you would, read along with me in God's word. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, 
In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bidstha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Agatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. And then Memukon said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the, the king and the not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded the Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, so when decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of our God. 
Because we have really good dates for the reign of Ahasuerus, who is clearly mentioned several times and is the focus of this first chapter of the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, we can date this book very, very accurately. 483 BC is at least when the the opening verses of this book are taking place. It might be important to know kind of what's going on at that time in the world, at least in the Jewish world. The Jews who had been exiled by Babylon have now been allowed for some time to go back to Jerusalem. And they have been trying to rebuild the capital there at Jerusalem and specifically trying to rebuild the temple. The interesting bit is you would never know this by reading the book of Esther. The book of Esther is odd, famously odd, as the one book in 66 that we find in our scriptures that don't mention God. Neither the title God nor the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is found in the book of Esther. It's not just that God isn't mentioned, it's that the Torah isn't mentioned. The law of God isn't mentioned. The promises of God are not mentioned. The exiles going back to their homeland is not mentioned. The fact that they have a homeland is not mentioned. There is no mention of anything to do with the history of the Jewish people. It's just Jews here. As one commentator said, you could probably drop in any ethnic group and the surface of the book of Esther would not suffer any problems. I do think while the surface of the story wouldn't suffer problems, the meaning of the story would definitely suffer. But not only is the book itself odd, this first chapter is very odd. I often complain to my family when we watch movies that there should have been 15 to 20 minutes cut out of that movie. It's not just because I've got better things to do than to watch 15 to 20 minutes worth of extra TV. Clearly that's not the case because I watch a lot of it. The, the point is, though, that these movies almost always run too long, and you read the book of Esther, and you realize that this entire first chapter could have been summed up by saying, Vashti did something bad, King Ahasuerus didn't like her anymore, so he wanted a replacement queen. That doesn't seem like it needs a lot of explanation, because kings are weird like that. They just kind of chuff people off when they don't like them, and they bring on new people that they do want. But we have this really long explanation, chocked full, by the way, of people that have no importance to the rest of the story at all. Even Ahasuerus, frankly, is a secondary character in the story. We don't even have the heroine of the story, or the hero of the story, or really the arch nemesis of the story introduced in this chapter. Why spend a tenth of the book here, of all places? I think that there is actually a very, very good reason I think that it would strip the meaning of the book directly out from underneath us. I think that the author of Esther is setting up the meaning of the book here, and I think it is clearly the power and the might of Ahasuerus on display. The point of the book of Esther as we go through it is that human power, even at its utmost apex as we are to see it here, is a weak and a frail power compared to the power of an unseen God. Let us then think through what Esther has to say about humans and their relationship to power. First, in that humans love power displayed. Humans love power displayed. This is an incredible feast, 180 days. Listen, I've been on a cruise, and I've gone to Ponderosa. I know what all-you-can-eat means, 
right? And on a, on a three-day cruise, I was surprised the boat wasn't listing to my side when we pulled into port, probably because the people on the other side ate just as much as me. You know what that means. And for 180 days, he's just saying, go after it. Drink as much as you can drink. Eat as much as you can eat. But it wasn't just the food and the wine that made this unbelievable. It's the setting. He was clearly trying to impress Look at the curtains, look at the floor, look at the couches, look at the goblets, look at everything I have. See the splendor of my glory and my pomp. He was going out of his way to show not just that he was rich, but in being rich, that he was powerful. He was showing off to the army, to the noble, to the governors. This is likely not just altruism, though. Ahasuerus had a father whose name was Darius. Darius had tried several times, famously, to take over the land of Greece, and he was repelled several times, famously. Ahasuerus is going to do the same. He is about to collect an army from Persia to go over the Hellespont into Greece, specifically to destroy Athens. He really hates Athens. Now, it's likely that this is not just a party to be thrown to show how much he loves people, but specifically so that they might have a war council, so the governors and the nobles and the generals might come together and agree upon a plan and agree upon the wages so that he might go and take over Greece. It's a vast kingdom. People clearly speak other languages, so he needs time to be able to make his plans known. He needs time to be able to impress them. So that they, when they come to him and say, listen, I'm not sure that the people in my province are really going to get behind this, he can say, listen, Do you you need to look around to see how I can reward you? Do you need to look around to see my wealth and my power and my greatness? I will give to you anything that you want, but show up and do what I need. This introduction is interesting for no other reason than the fact that the only other place in the Bible where we have anything close to this kind of description of a palace is where we have described for us in several different places the temple of our God the details and the wonder of the glory of the the very temple itself, the inlays, the, the design details, the curtains, the way the curtains are hung, the goblets that are there, everything of gold and silver. It is hard for anyone to read this description who knows well what has come before in Scripture and to not think that there is supposed to be a comparison here, which is made all the more firm in the fact that This is a time when the temple of God doesn't stand. Babylon has ransacked it. They have burned it to the ground. All of those vessels that were supposed to hold the glory of God and demonstrate the glory of God have been removed from the temple. God literally doesn't have a home now. His temple has been destroyed. His things have been removed and his glory has left. Ahasuerus not only has all the power, he has all the display of power. And God, who isn't even mentioned in the text, doesn't have any. Who is mightier? Who is stronger? This is indeed what we should see. And we should be asking ourselves even day. Who is mightier? God or man? The power that we see or the power that is unmentioned, that we can't see. This is precisely what the book of Esther wants us to see, or we might want to say precisely what we are meant to not see. 
we might expect as we go through the text that we would have Mordecai or, or we would have Esther saying something along the lines of a Psalm 13 or, or any of a number of psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We would expect that even if they can't find God, even if they don't see God, that they would be the ones to utter a prayer up. But this is the genius of the book of Esther. By keeping it from them, the question is obvious for us. Why is God not here? Where is his power over his people? Where is his authority over his people? For often, God's power is hidden from us. Secondly, while humans love displays of power, humans use power to frankly dehumanize people. Ahasuerus summons his wife Vashti as a way of putting it, put the cherry on the top of the entire thing. In front of his nobles and in front of all of his officers, he says, hey, bring Queen Vashti because she's got a pretty face and she's got some nice curves. And I want my men to look at her because I want them above everything else to say, not only does he have all this, but that beautiful wife as well. What can't this man do? What can't this man have? Now, between Ahasuerus's frankly pornographic way of treating his wife and between Vashti's Frank disobedience toward him. Christian commentators have gotten themselves in all kinds of knots trying to lay blame here. Some people have gone to Romans 13 where we're told to submit ourselves to authorities or 1 Peter 2 where we're told to honor the emperor. And some have gone to Ephesians 5 where it talks about wives submitting themselves to their husbands and said, hey, Vashti probably isn't right here. I have a number of problems doing that. For one, none of those texts were available to Vashti, and Vashti and Ahasuerus don't follow biblical laws or norms. They're pagans, so there's no reason to expect them to do that. But two, the book of Esther just frankly doesn't care. It it doesn't assign good or bad to almost any character in here. You're going to find Esther is going to do some very kind of strange things, and Mordecai is going to give her some very strange advice. I do think, though, that it is worth pointing out that what Ahasuerus is doing to his wife is treating her as nothing more than a couch or a curtain or a vessel. It's just one more thing. She's just one more vessel to show his glory in. That's it. That's exactly what he's doing to her. She's just one more golden cup, one more purple drape, one more splurge of wine. She is just a means to an end. And Ahasuerus is showing his idolatry here because there is only one who has the right to treat people as a means to his own end, and that is God. To treat anyone else as a means to an end for yourself is to overlook them as people who are worthy of love and respect and honor. Human power tends to dehumanize those who are under it. Ahasuerus is doing nothing but making himself God and therefore making everyone else less than the images of that God. That is not what Vashti is there for. This is made all the more difficult for Ahasuerus given the nature of what we know he has done to his provinces and leaders. The very war council that he has, we have a summary of it in in a historian named Herodotus. And there, we're told that Ahasuerus has said to his people, as for you, 
nobles and governors. This is how you shall best please me. When I declare to you the time for your coming, every one of you must appear, and with good will. You not only have to show up, you better be happy about it. And whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts that are reckoned most precious among us. See, the problem for Ahasuerus is that he's telling them, when I call you, you've got to come. Bring me Vashti. No, she ain't coming. See, Ahasuerus isn't just treating his wife. It's not just treating his wife as a, as a vessel for his glory. All those guys are just vessels for his glory. If there's anyone's glory that he is seeking, it's Darius's, his dead dad. He's just trying to make up to him what he couldn't do. He doesn't care how much blood he spills. He doesn't care how he ruins these people's lives. He's using them as an end for his own glory. And it doesn't just work top down either. Listen to how Memucan responds. It's clear that the problem is not, and we, we need to be quite obvious about this, the problem with this whole thing, first and foremost, is how Ahasuerus is going to get people who are governors and princes, who have their own pride problems, to show up when he calls when he can't get his wife to do it, and Memocon says, no, actually the problem is my wife, because I'm going to catch it, man. When she finds out, all the officials, their wives are not going to listen to us anymore. I really wish that the ESV hadn't say wrath in plenty. I think wrath of plenty would work much better. Like, I am in so much trouble. I'm going to have so many difficulties keeping my wife in line. That's basically what, what his problem is. Because Ahasuerus treats others with contempt because he has power. If power is the only thing you want, then he is just a conduit for your own power. He doesn't care what happens to Ahasuerus so long as Memucan's okay. Humans use power, and that use of power tends to dehumanize. And this makes sense. Thirdly, humans' use of power is daft. It is daft, it is stupid, it is silly, and it is ridiculous. There are three things at the very least in this sort of solution that is given that is, they're just comically inept. First, while they have already, I think, from a political standpoint, misaddressed what the real problem is here. They, they say, listen, the real problem is all the women in the kingdom are going to hear about this and we're going to have total chaos everywhere, which is unlikely. Okay, let's say that is the problem. We're going to get the best minds, the best counsel in Persia together. We're going to collect all of them. You seven, you're the best thinkers in the whole bunch. So get your heads together Consider together, let's figure out this is the problem. The problem is the women are going to find out. Word's going to get out. They're going to hear it. What are we going to do to fix it? How are we going to fix that problem? Again, I can't state it enough. The problem is the women are going to hear. What are we going to do? You can hear the little hamster wheel turning. Memicon says, like the anti-Peter raising his hand, says, I know what we're going to do. We're going to tell them the problem. The problem was literally that they were afraid the women would find out. And so their solution is to announce it to the wide world that this has happened. How many people were really there? It's not like he made an announcement to the entire banquet that she was coming. He told the eunuchs to go get her. It's a ridiculous overkill. Not only that, the outcome that they're seeking is incredibly illogical. 
Imagine that you are a man or a woman on the outskirts of the Persian Empire. You're having some marital difficulties. Husband comes in. He says, so uh, I know you heard about Vashti, right? Yeah. Well, a proclamation was made that finally got its way to us this week. Oh, yeah, is that so? What was that? Well, she's not allowed in his presence anymore. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Anything else? Uh, no, 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 just, just that. And, uh, and because of that, you, uh, you, you, sh- you should give me honor. I, I don't think that that's how logic works. Well, she's not allowed in the king's sight anymore. Well, let me get this right. She disobeys him by not coming in. And his solution is to give her what she wants? And that means that I ought to obey you? Shouldn't I disobey you? No, no, that's not, that's not what it means. What it means is that she disrespected him, so you were to respect me. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, that outcome is not going to happen. It doesn't logically flow. It doesn't make any sense at all. They're making this announcement that not only is off politically from what it should be, not only does it go against the very nature of the problem, but there's no solution there. And then... The stated outcome is that all men might be masters of their own household. Not only does the publishing of the affair seem daft, but stating this as the conclusion might be the daftest thing at all. It's like they took turns thinking of different ways to spin this problem that would, one, misconstrue what the real problem is, two, mismanage that problem, and three, highlight and exacerbate that problem. We don't want the women to find out, so we're going to tell everybody. We're not only going to tell them, we're going to show how Vasti got her way by disobeying him and how Ahasuerus is not the master of his own household. So that should show them. It it is like a lived-out Monty Python sketch. It's ridiculous. Now, the, the presence of that, and as you go through Esther, there's a lot of things that are somewhat comical that happens in them seems a bit out of place in a story that features things like sex trafficking and genocide. If God's people were not saved, if God's people were not eventually brought out of the trouble that they were in, it would simply be an exercise in the sadness of human ineptitude, even those who are supposed to be leaders. But... Because that is not what happens. Because God is strong to deliver his people. It's comical. All human use of power outside of the will of God, fighting against God, struggling against God, is, in the end, comical. It's daft, it's silly, it's ridiculous. Do you know the only time that God laughs in Scripture? Don't get me wrong. I think that God is a blessed and a happy God. And I have no doubt that Jesus not only had a good sense of humor, I think you see that through the Gospels, but I think that he would generally be called a fairly happy guy by those who would have known him as he walked the earth. Now, I'm not saying this to make you think otherwise. I'm using this as kind of a rhetorical point, but only one time in Scripture has God ever said to laugh. What is it that would have been so funny that the author thought, I need to write down that God's laughing about that. What was so ridiculous that made him think, yeah, 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 laughter is what God would be doing at that? It's in Psalm 2. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain. 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 then says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Let's gather all of our might, let's gather all of our strength, and we hate God, we hate his anointed, and we're gonna break out of these bonds. We're gonna get out of the captivity that he has over his sovereignty, his rule over all the world. We don't like it, so we're just gonna break it apart. And God looks down and he's like, huh, you're like a little toddler throwing a fit, aren't you? Look at you, good for you. Work really hard, hard, be angry, right? I have, I have a one-year-old in my house that we're fostering, I've had two, three-year-olds. I know what fits look like. I've had them come up and pound me on the leg, right? You're like, oh, that's cute. That's exactly what God's like. He's looking down and he's laughing. It's, it's ridiculous. Do you think that with all of your power, all of your might, that you can do anything to God? No, it's comical. In the end, all human power is daft before God. And that leads us to point four. Humans' love of power is deranged. It's, it's insane. It, it, it is completely ridiculous. Over the past two years, several months, and even the past couple of weeks, there have been many in this country who have been caught up in conspiracy theories led by QAnon and others. Certainly, we would expect that that kind of conspiracy theory has found its way into people in this church. My general attitude toward conspiracy theories is that such things are foolish in the highest, not worthy of your time, and are bad for you. But indeed, this is just part, everything that that has said and spoken of is just part of a larger conspiracy that every single person in this room has bought into. Every single one of us have fallen for a conspiracy. This conspiracy is written all over the pages of Scripture. It was the same conspiracy that allowed men to watch in derision as Noah built the ark, that allowed kings to array themselves against Abraham that made brothers sell Joseph to Pharaoh, or, excuse me, to Egypt. Same conspiracy that led Pharaoh think that he should drown the firstborn in the Nile, and that same Pharaoh thinking that he could, or his son later thinking that he can destroy the nation of Israel by the Red Sea. It was the same, the exact same conspiracy that led King Sihon and Og to refuse passage to the people of Israel. The same conspiracy that led the people of Canaan to think that they could fight against the people of Israel and win. The same conspiracy that led Achan thinking that he could keep the goods. The same conspiracy that's rampant throughout the entire book of Judges. The same one you see on the lips of Goliath when he defies the armies of the living God. The same one that makes Jezebel chase the prophets into the wilderness and allows Jehoiakim thinking that he can destroy the prophecy of Jeremiah simply by burning the scroll. It's seen in Babylon's prideful deportation of Israel. It's seen in Ahasuerus' grand banquet. It's seen in Herod slaughtering the children of Bethlehem. 
and Pontius crucifying the Lord. Later in history, it'll be seen in Rome, thinking that it can bleed the bride of Christ to death. It's, it's the same thing that we have heard since the foundation of time. It is the snake coming up to Eve and saying, you will not surely die. This statement is no different than the snake looking at her and saying, you know what you see in your hand? What you, what you have, what you can taste, what you can touch, what you can smell, what you can feel, what you see in your hand, that is power. It's power over the very word of God. It's power to decide your fate. It's the power to make you master of good and evil. It's the power to make you wise. It is power. What you see is power. It's that same statement that is whispered even among God's people today. What you see before you is power. What you can put your hands on and know and touch and smell, it's power. It's just like looking around Ahasuerus' banquet hall. It's power everywhere. Let me ask and be wholly honest with yourselves here because this is one of those soul-searching questions that can't like be, be passed up. If you are angry, frustrated, anxious, filled with malice in your heart and more than a little bit of hate over what has happened in November and December and in January, do you honestly think, honestly think that that is righteous anger? I don't know the answer to every single person's heart. I would venture this, though, that at least a good portion of that anger, a good portion of that frustration, a good portion of the, the anxiety and the frustration that people feel is a really easy one to diagnose. It is the fact for the first time in our country's history, for the first time, people who think they belong to Jesus Christ are losing worldly power. You see it. You feel it. You're losing grips on your country. You felt like you've been losing it for a while, and now it just seems sort of sealed and fatalistic. You've seen it when they started taking, you think, prayers out of the public schools, and now they're emboldening the deepest and darkest sins there. You felt it when they attack things like in God we trust on the coins and then they reach into your pocket and they take your money from you. You felt it for decades with judicial activism and now you are certain of it with every single ludicrous decision that's handed down. And now it feels like it's almost fully gone and I've got news for you, it almost is. The proposed solution by a good number of Christians is to get it again. We need to take back, we need to reclaim, we need to do all this stuff to go back in time to this grand era of Christianity in America. This was, by the way, literally the calling card of our last president, make America great again. What are we going to say in 2024? Make America great again. Again. 
Let's get power. Let's use it however we can. If you are lamenting that loss of power, if you're angry and you're bitter upon it, about it, and you call upon the name of Christ, why are you angry? Are you honestly angry that your voice isn't heard in Lansing and in Washington when it's heard in heaven? Are you honestly filled with malice and frustration and anger because judges do stupid things? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Why act as though the loss of America is the loss is a loss for Christ? This was never his nation. It was never his nation. He has a kingdom. He doesn't need this place. He doesn't need our Congress. He doesn't need our president. He doesn't need our judicial system. He doesn't need our military. He doesn't need our constitution. He needs none of it. It's not his nation. He has a kingdom. This is what the very book of Esther is about. It is the power of a God and a kingdom that can't be seen, that isn't felt, that isn't spoken, that is nowhere around. It is the power of God manifested through weakness. It is greater, that weak power that is displayed in the lives of Christians who lay down their lives, that power is greater in weakness than any human power in the hands of God. As Paul would look at the Corinthian church, this church that wanted nothing but power and might. They wanted to make themselves look great. Paul looks at them, and in 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is so strong that the strongest man in all of Persia, the one who sits as king over, basically, the world at that time, is ruled by a God who doesn't even show up in the book. It's not that Ahasuerus doesn't actually have power or that what happens in Washington doesn't matter or that what happens in Lansing doesn't matter or, heaven forbid, that the church should somehow be apolitical about things. The church must, both our church and the wider church, must, must stop confusing the power of men with the power of God because they are not same. It must stop thinking that the power of God is best seen in the power of man's institutions and structures. And I would tell you, from my vantage point, this is why the vast majority of Christians who are upset are upset. It isn't because Christ has been slighted. It's not because of the unborn. It's because they've lost power. Because they're have fallen into the conspiracy that has been laid before all men for all time, that what you see is power and not what God is, is power. They act as though God's power is best seen through structures and institutions of our courts, of our Congress, or our economy. Listen, overturning that thought is one of the greatest themes in Scripture. Not to mention one of the great triumphs of the gospel, where a homeless Galilean nobody is crucified to overturn all of the power of the world. He didn't come as a political giant. He, he didn't come as a mighty warrior. He came as a nobody 
with all of the rights of divinity that he laid down so to win your sins back from you, to take them from you, to vanquish them, to give you power over death, to give you power because he trusted in a God who wasn't apparently there at the cross. He lays down all of his rights because he believes in one who has power beyond the power of the world. This is no less than a theme of the gospel. As Paul will say just two verses later in 1 Corinthians, because that same God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. God will use basically a no-named woman to change the heart of a king, to save God's people, but not just to save God's people, to save the line that will bring us Jesus, that will save our souls. He uses the things that are not to shame the things that are. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be the things that are in the world, or do you want to be the things that are not in the world? Do you want to be people who hold on and strangle your own rights to keep them because you have to have power over something? Or are you willing to give those up so that in love and care and submission to everyone else, you might show the love of Christ to others? Let us get back to trusting the power of God in our weakness. Using our weakness to serve, to love, and to show compassion. God has not called you to chase power. He has called you to chase love and justice. Let us stop putting hope in the power of the world, which is useless, it's empty, and frankly, friends, it is soul-destroying. All the people who are overly concerned with the power of the world, how to get it, how to produce it, how to wield power, how to show power, how to get power in the courts, power in legislation, power in Congress, Power in the presidency, power in the police, power in the military. All these people who foam at the mouth on the radio. All these people who foam in the mouth on your television sets. All of these people who are bitter and angry and have nothing but frustration and anxiety and rage. Do you know what I hear when I hear them talk? I am Oxy Ozymandias. And you know what I see? Not a kingdom. Sand and destruction, and despair. You know what I read scripture, what I hear? If you listen real closely, you hear the faint sound coming from scripture, echoing throughout scripture, of laughter. May God have mercy on us. Let us pray. Father, may our hope and reliance be all upon you. May the frailty of men in this world not lead us to despair. May the luster of our power not entice our hopes. May the whisper of the serpent not lead us astray. Let us find our hope, not in the power of the world, but in the power of a man crucified, in the power of weakness before the world, which is nothing less than the strength of our God. And in doing so, may you be glorified by us, your servants, 
who live and long only for your glory. Amen.